0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we often talk about love and also marriage in our regular Marriage on the Mind series. And before both comes dating, and there was a column about dating that really caught our eye. A gentleman named Isaac Huss wrote a very honest piece entitled, A Man's Insecurities in Dating, a perspective, by the way, that we rarely hear as most men aren't willing to open up about their insecurities or deficiencies. But Isaac did exactly that in this column for Verily Magazine, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen.
1: Hi, my name's Isaac. Like many men, I find myself to be, at least from time to time, insecure about being in a relationship with a woman. What are my insecurities? I worry about how I sound when I sing in the shower. I worry that I volunteer too much info about myself. I worry that I'll hit somebody with my car on a date. But most of all, I worry that I'll suck at love. It's hard for men to admit this stuff. We want to come across like we have it all figured out. Like we are strong enough for the both of us. But in reality, we're dealing with some things internally that inevitably affect our relationships. and. We typically would prefer that nobody know about it, least of all the women in our life. And all men, no matter how confident they appear, are dealing with this. The man you're with is not likely to ever tell you this stuff, but you and I, dear reader, aren't dating. And good can only come from better understanding men in your life and the sort of obstacles they might be dealing with, and by extension, you'd be dealing with. The truth is, my singing voice in the shower is the least of my insecurities when it comes to dating women. But I do worry that I'm not particularly good at choosing a partner, that I put too much emphasis on physical attraction, or a magical spark, if you will, or maybe that I'll allow the pendulum to swing too far the other way and find myself with someone I have plenty in common with. But whom I'm not attracted to enough. This leads me to avoid commitment more often than I choose to admit. But then there are times when I'm confident in the woman I'm with that I'm worried about other things moving too fast into a relationship and scaring someone away, or moving too slowly and losing someone. After polling my friends, I discovered that there is a common underlying fear beneath all our shared concerns. What if I don't have what it takes? Most guys, if not all, struggle with the possibility that someday they simply won't be able to measure up to the challenges that they'll face in a committed relationship. For me, that can mean anything from not making enough money to not being loving or tender-hearted enough when my partner would need me to be. But perhaps the greatest anxiety in this regard is that she'll leave me. Or worse, she'll stay with me, but be miserable as a result. Either way, there's nothing I could do about it. Or so the narrative goes in my head. This anxiety, of course, comes from history. Especially for those of us who have been dumped before without much of a reason beyond, quote, I'm just not that into you, unquote, those past experiences can be like dark clouds hovering overhead. Sometimes it's hard to enjoy what's happening because you're afraid it'll all be over in an instant. My buddy Alex puts it this way, quote, They'll say no one has ever been so fun, interesting, confident, and thoughtful. Yet, they want to end it. I'm thankful now that I have a girlfriend, three months strong, but I still face that demon from time to time, despite her being completely enamored by me. Unquote. Your man is probably not expecting or even needing you to be his savior. In fact, I personally don't want a woman to think I need any special treatment. Frankly... Just being aware that a man might have self-esteem issues, or questions of self-worth, or in his ability to hold up his end of the bargain, is a great first step that will be illuminating and helpful in its own right. If a woman is patient and understanding when I make a mistake, that's huge for me. That doesn't mean she can't be mad when I slip up, nor does it mean I make all the mistakes. I just want to know that we're in this thing together and that my mistakes or shortcomings aren't going to change my standing with her. That will go a long way in helping me feel confident in myself and our relationship, and that will help me be a better man for her. A wise man once said, Perfect love casts out all fear. In my experience, Even beyond patience and understanding, the best cure for relationship anxiety is simply love. Resist the temptation to withhold affection or hold grudges against someone because that can really erode a sense of trust and companionship until it becomes a tug of war, or worse, a competition of manipulation. If you sense that he feels inadequate, Show him how much you love him. If you find him fretting about your future together, reassure him by your love. If you have a rough patch when you've wondered if the spark has faded, fan the flames a little bit. Believe me, your efforts won't go unnoticed.
0: And thank you for sharing that, Isaac. That's a confessional of a sort. Not many men would share it, but we all have it. I don't care if you're in the best marriage. On some level, you've got to worry. You don't know. You pray. You hope. Love and perfect love does cast off all fear, but it's the scariest of places. And thank you again, Isaac Huss, Verily Magazine, a man's insecurities in dating. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Download what we do, stream it, or go to iTunes. We're there too. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, that's sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard defending small businesses in this great country on tax policies, state legislatures, the federal government, and they want to try and do what they can to make small businesses grow into bigger ones. And that is the American Dream, folks. And by the way, there are many varieties of the American Dream, but one of them is this small business ownership and they're around your town, they're on Main Street, all over this great country, and they need support, and they need help, and that's what the great folks at Job Creators Network do every day. And now our own Alex Cortes brings us this story.
2: Stan S. Hubbard is a pioneer and a character.
3: I was in the men's room, and I started singing this song to myself. "Old spice means quality, said the captain to the boatswain. You remember that? Look for the the ship that sails the ocean, Old Spice. Or uh, Pepsi-Cola, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12-ounce bottle bottle twice as, let's see, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12-ounce bottle, that's a lot, twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Radio sticks in people's minds. Ninety-three percent of Americans listen to radio every day, and radio is a great medium. Anybody doesn't think it doesn't know what they're talking about.
2: Stan knows what he's talking about. Starting with his dad, Stan E. Hubbard. His family has been media pioneers since the 1920s, when the only radio stations that were out there were owned by big corporations like General Mills and Westinghouse, who used it to promote their own products. But the stations themselves didn't make money at all.
3: There was no commercial radio. And he had an idea that if he could put popular music on the radio, something other than a fat lady singing opera to the accompaniment of a piano, maybe can sell advertising. You could not play records on the radio. The only way you could put music on the radio in 1922 and 23 was by picking up live music. There were two ballrooms. There was the Prom Ballroom in St. Paul and the Marigold Ballroom in Minneapolis. In each ballroom, every night a different national dance band would come out and play, and people buy tickets and dance. He made a deal with the Marigold Ballroom that if they'd give him the studio, he would then broadcast their music at night and get people to listen to poverty music. There was a doctor in Minneapolis who thought this would be terrible. You're going to, you know, influence the minds of. Of young people in a bad way. So this guy got a uh, induction coil. Know what an induction coil is? No. You take a coil of wire and put a light bulb in it and take it out by an AM radio transmitter, it'll light the light bulb. So this guy got a thousand watt light bulb, put a, a, a coil of wire, an induction coil, by my dad's transmitter. The idea was he'd sap all the strength and no one would be able to hear the radio. Well it lighted his light bulb, But it didn't keep people from listening to the radio. So he was able to sell advertising. And he used to talk about sleeping under the piano. And, you know, it was really tough. He was a real, I'm mean, i lucky. I'm here because of my dad. He had great ideas and he had the guts to follow through and do it.
2: His dad's next great idea was news. The AP and UP news wires wouldn't sell their services to radio. Because it would bring competition to their newspaper clients, which it would. But to Stan, so what? What's wrong with little competition?
3: So he started his own newswire. He got cafe in Los Angeles. He got a station in Chicago. And another one used a Western Union telegraph wire at night when it was not being used. And they sent stories back and forth. And because of that, the UP and the AP were convinced, well, we better sell it to radio was way back. He was involved in news from day one.
2: He was also involved as an investigator. He just didn't wait for some news wire to come to him. He went out into the field and discovered the news too. And not all of his subjects
3: liked him being there. The chief of police of Minneapolis was Chief Brunskill. And there was some tiefster rioting going on and, and there was a murder. I remember sitting in his office. You know, I was in my 20s. And he was telling us about this story. He had this story about uh, the Teamsters stories and the murder. He got called down to Chief Brunskill's office. My dad was just a little new startup radar guy. And Chief Brunskill said to him Hubbard, you little son of a bitch. If you run that story, you're going to find yourself in the Mississippi River wearing cement shoes. Dad, what'd you do? I didn't run the story <laughs> because he was a little guy was scared to death. He could have gotten himself killed. And if you go down to the historical society, there's a picture of Chief Punskill. like he's a hero.
2: And radio wasn't enough for his dad. He was fascinated by this thing called television.
3: My dad bought the first TV camera ever sold anywhere in the world in 1938 at the World's Fair. And we demonstrated in 1939 how TV worked. Got the uh, American Legion, of Stranger Parade and had some TV sets in the office building and demonstrated how TV worked. The problem was you couldn't get money.
2: Investor money.
3: No one would believe that TV would ever worked. The government granted us the frequency, but at that time you could have had a television license with a price for the price of a postage card just by sending it to the FCC.
2: But it would take the Hubbards nine more years to put together the money to actually launch their flagship TV station KSTP in their home market of Minneapolis, St. Paul.
3: We had a uh, investor named Tom Bragg that came along in 1962 and he put $3 million into our business. And I asked him one night, Mr. Bragg, how come you decided to invest in my dad's TV business? He said, because I was told by Jack Warner not to. TV will never work. And I said, tell me the story. He said, I was having lunch at Jack Warner's Brownstone on Park Avenue, I asked Jack Warner about television. Jack Warner said, TV will never work because it would be impossible to produce a new movie for every night of the week. Jack Warner's whole vision was movies, not all the other things to do. And I went back, he, he said he went back in the kitchen to thank the cook for the nice dinner. And he said they had a TV set there and they were all glued to it. He said, I knew right there and then. The TV wasn't at work, so I invested in my dad's TV business.
2: The Hubbards now have 10 TV stations across the country. And his dad was a pioneer there too, being the first in the world to have regularly scheduled daily news. But getting that first station going was quite
3: a story. My dad wanted to launch a TV station in St. Paul. It's a true story. He made a lot of dumb mistakes. But some St. Paul people were trying to take my dad's TV license away from him. And his banker was Lilly, First National Bank. From the time my dad was in business, he did all of his business at First National Bank. So my dad applied for Channel 5 in St. Paul. There were only gonna be two channels at that time. There was gonna be four in Minneapolis and five in St. Paul. There weren't gonna be no others until later. The commission authorized other channels. So they filed on top of him. And of course they had money. Now they'd been his bankers, and they filed on top of him. They figured if Huffer's gonna do this, it's probably gonna be worthwhile. So my dad's bankers tried to keep him from getting his TV license. You can believe it, the Lilly family. My dad didn't know what the hell to do. He flew, to he didn't flew, he took a train to Washington, went to the Mayflower Hotel. He'd met Harry Truman during a bond drive. Harry Truman was vice president, came through here. My dad was a bond chairman, war bonds.
2: For financing World War II,
3: had a lunch at the old St. Paul Athletic Club for business leaders to raise money for war bonds. He said, "I'm going to see if I can see the president." This is an absolute truth. He went and checked into the Mayflower Hotel and called the White House and asked if he could speak to the president. He got right through, and the president saying, "Sandy, I remember you. What are you doing? Can you come over to the White House?" He went over to the White House and told him his story about how the bankers are trying to take his. TV license away that he had applied for first. Harry Truman did what you cannot do today. He picked up the phone and called the chairman of the FCC. And he said, I'm here with my friend Stanley Hubbard. And the bankers are trying to take his TV station away. And the chairman of the FCC said, I know all about that, Mr. President. It's scheduled for a comparative hearing. When is that hearing going to be? It's going to be in about a year from now because we're so backed up with hearings. The president said, then have a night hearing. There's been one night hearing in the history of the FCC. My dad got his license. That's a true story. Now, is that a good story? So I keep Harry Truman's Bible head right here.
2: There's no way the president can get involved like that today. No, he wouldn't dare today. <laughs>
3: yeah. Huh? TV was nothing. Everybody thought it won't work. Everybody at school said, your dad's going to lose everything. He's going to go broke.
2: And the whole time that Stan told this fantastic story... He was playing with this Truman bobblehead, bobbling the president's head.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Stanley Hubbard's story, chairman and CEO of Hubbard Broadcasting. It's really his family's story. And by the the way, what a great father-son story we got right here for Father's Day. And we have so many of them. More on this story here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Stan Hubbard, chairman and CEO of Hubbard Broadcasting. This is a part of our American Dreamers series. Let's pick up where we left off.
2: Stan's parents had him working hard all of his childhood, shoveling snow, mowing lawns, painting buildings, and eventually, they let him into the family business:
3: first job was a news photographer. I turned 18 in May 28, 1951. They gave me a, a speed graphic camera and a police radio in the car, and I went out and I chased police calls. I was a warm body and shot news stories. Came back here and developed the pictures, told the newsroom about the story. They would write up a story around what I'd report. I would uh, process the film, four by five speed, 400 ASA 400 film, print it in a high speed printer, then I'd go to the studio, it would be on a on an easel, we only had two cameras at that time, and then I'd have the headset on and listen for the director to tell me when to pull the shot. There'd be another guy in the other easel and he'd pull it faster than the eye could tell, or they could go from easel to easel. It was very exciting, so I was a hero around school because I had a police radio in my car and I would go out after school on the weekends and in the summertime I worked till late at night. I just loved it.
2: To my surprise, Stan said it was legal for news organizations to have these police radios. Stan also helped solve that problem that movie boss Jack Warner saw. How the heck would television stations have enough programming every single day? KSTP decided that one of their programs would be Weekly Professional Wrestling. And Stan's rolling it would also be of the we-need-a-warm-body nature.
3: When it's time for a commercial, I'd bang on the bottom of the ring and Jack Guy the wrestler and the wrestlers would then have a fall.
4: And they both collide and both go down.
3: And when the fights were over at the end of the evening, I'd say to you guys are just phony. No, we're not. When I hear that knock, they would struggling to get going.
2: And when Stan was in his mid-30s, it was his turn to do something that the rest of the world thought was crazy. He was the very first person outside of the government to apply for a license for direct broadcast
3: satellite. It took us 12 years to get it going. I figured over 1,200 presentations I made. Over 1,200 presentations. I was constantly on the road. Those
2: 1,200 presentations we to generate interest from investors. That's almost two presentations every single week for 12 straight years. As you can guess, there wasn't a lot of interest in this. That's some commitment Stan had to a vision of shooting a satellite up in space. Then setting from Earth broadcast signals to it what we know as the programming we watch. And this satellite then sends these signals back down to earth to every single subscriber spread across the country who puts this small pizza pan sized satellite on their home. A truly wild idea.
3: That's a TV tower, 32,300 miles in the sky. People said, you're crazy. I mean, it was unbelievable the uh, abuse you received. Everybody takes it for granted now. Any place you went. I can show you newspaper articles. Hubbard's crazy. It'll never happen.
2: According to Hubbard, there was a couple of reasons why. One was that big cable operators like John Malone's Charter Communications just didn't like the competition. Malone said that DBS direct broadcast satellite should really stand for don't be stupid.
3: Because they saw that it could... If we could have gotten it going when he first filed for a license in 1981, there would be no cable today because cable had 12 channels. That's all they could transmit. And right out of the chute, we had 32. So it would have been 32 channel proposition against a 12 channel proposition. And the thing that I understood was you didn't have to run cables. You didn't have to have repair trucks. There was no infrastructure the ground. All you had to do was do your programming. You paid for the satellite and the programming, and people buy a dish. It's so much more economically feasible than cable.
2: Then there were the critics who'd say it just couldn't work, Hubbard.
3: I knew it worked. So I experimented. There was a tele—I uh, can't think of a company in Canada would do remote broadcasts, and they had a remote satellite unit, so I rented that from them. And I did broadcasts, hockey games from Sioux Falls, Sioux City, Des Moines, Snow Rain, and it worked. Everybody said it'll never work if it rains or snows. Worked.
2: And then the TV network said that they didn't like it because, well, it was new.
3: People thought their acts would be gourd. And my message to the network says, no, be a part of it. Be a part of it. Expand your service.
2: Expanded their service, it did. Into all of the homes that cable TV just couldn't reach. Which is my exact situation right now, living in a rural area. And just wait until you hear by how much, but I'm not going to tell you yet. Hubbard still had to raise all this money, and he couldn't. But thankfully, someone else couldn't either.
3: A huge aircraft came to us. They were told by the board of directors if they could get an investor to raise X number of dollars, which wasn't that many, $30 million, to bring in as a partner, they could go ahead and launch a business.
2: It doesn't sound like that much money now, but I'm sure it seemed like it after 12 years of making 1,199 presentations until they hit gold on presentation number 1,200.
3: There was two guy, young guys who were trying to raise money and get into our deal, and they called me and said, "You got to go see George Soros. You'll probably get a million or something." I just said, "You know, I'm sick of banging my head in the wall," and I flew to New York. We so I drugged him Miller. Soros is number two. And he had another guy there. I can't remember the young guy's name. Nice young guy. I know we're going to find out. He'll know. He's got a great memory.
2: Throughout our interview, Stan called his colleagues, including his kids, Stan and Rob.
5: Stan Hubbard's office. This is Dinah.
2: And we kept them all for
3: your enjoyment. Can I speak to Stanley, please?
5: Uh, he's just on the other line. Hold on just a second. Thanks for calling Reels. You're welcome. You can always see true stories
3: of the
2: famous. In 2006, the Hubbards created the Reels television channel.
3: Reels is now one of the top 35 cable satellite channels. <coughs> it's in the black, finally. Anyway, this guy was just a naysayer. Standing as Hello. He'll be right with you. Thanks. Anyway, I think it was, I think it was Liberty. the yes and the no man. So Soros came in and talked to us for Thanks about for five minutes. And then Druckenmutter left.
5: Real new light on by and he came back and said, I'll, we'll take $50 million worth. For that Thanks again for wow. Real
3: and we only had $30 million left to sell in the tranche. So he put in $30 million bucks, But it happened that fast. And then they sent Ken Langone out to check us out on a Sunday.
2: The same Ken Langone, who's a co-founder of the Home Depot and was a business associate of Soros.
3: He said these are really good people and he advised that they go ahead of the investment. Maybe Stan's not gonna talk. Well, he was that like, Stan Druckenmiller's right hand guy.
5: Oh, wait, um.
3: His name wasn't Wade. <laughs>
5: No, no, you are correct, sir. Buzz Burlock?
3: Ah, maybe it was Buzz Burlock. Buzz
5: Burlock was further down, but he was the one that no. we dealt with.
3: No, you don't know. You're no good. Goodbye.
5: <laughs> Bye.
3: Hey, Stanley? I have it for you now.
2: Oh. I want to keep all those back and forth in the interview.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, what was what was Drunken Miller's naysayer that was with him when we visited him? Uh, uh, Buzz, uh... Was that Burlock? Or was it somebody else? Anyway, where were we? So we went in there, and by God, we came home with $30 million. That was nice. Until he tried to double-cross us.
0: And when we come back, more of the rest of the story. What a character. What a story. And he's still obsessed with that guy who said no to him. It's wonderful. Proving him wrong. Stan Hubbard, chairman and CEO of Hubbard Broadcasting, like so many American dreamers, they do it because they do it. And they won't take no for an answer. And boy, 1,200 presentations, folks. 1,200. More after these messages. return to the final installment of this terrific story, this great American dreamer story. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do there. Let's return to Alex and the rest of the story. In
2: 1993, Stan's company called United States Satellite Broadcasting (USSB) was off to the races, partnering with but also competing with Hughes's company, which they
3: called Direct TV. He was bored, <coughs> was so lacking in vision, their whole deal was, can you get the money back for the cost of the satellite? That was a big concern. <coughs> and I remember uh, the guy who was, a, I can't even think of his name right now, he was the head of uh, DirecTV. Oh, uh, that what was his name. Eddie, uh you ever get older? You're going to have your memory shakes. Anyway. Uh, Hello. What was Eddie's name at TV? Hartenstein. Yeah, Hartenstein.
2: <laughs> you got people who know everything. <laughs> Eddie Hartenstein. Well,
3: Rob, Rob did all the engineering on it. Our son Rob. Yeah. Stan went out and lined up all the programs. And Rob was just 21, 22 years old and he arranged for everything. And Stan went out and lined up the programmers. And DirecTV thought, well, we're going to have everything, and Hubbard's going to be on the satellite, but they were not have any programs. And I remember being in Stan's office when he called Lady Ardenstein and told him we had all the Viacom, we had HBO, we had all these great programs, and there was just dead silence on the line. They didn't think we'd have anything. Within half a year of being in business, we had over a half a billion dollars sales. I mean, the thing took off just like a rocket.
2: But then their first bedfellow, George Soros, became an ugly one to sleep in the same bed with.
3: There was a, uh, the guy who was, uh, he worked for HBO. He was in charge of programming from HBO. Larry, uh, I'll ask Bob Where you. Where is think?
5: he? I think he went down to legal. Oh, okay. Should I have him call you when he gets
3: back? Uh, yeah, please. Kay. Call another source. Larry, uh was it Johnson? He was in charge of programming for HBO. Stan Hubbard's
5: office, this is Dinah. Where is he? Right here. Thank you. Hold oh, on, just one second. <laughs> Thanks for calling Reels.
3: Stan and Rob are the ones that made it happen. It was my idea, they oh. made it happen. Hey Stan, what was Larry's name at HBO? Larry Carlson. Carlson. I just came to me. <laughs> I've got a guy here asking about USSB and how he got going, huh? Larry Carlson. Larry Carlson, thank you. See you later, bye. Bye. Larry Carlson went to a luncheon in New York where George Soros had the luncheon. And George Sor- Soros stood up and told him what bad people Hubbard's are. That Stanley Hubbard put his son in, his nepotism, as president of this company in which he was a 30% shareholder, I think it was 30%. And then I put we put our son in as a, uh, as a president and Bob is a vice president and we're bad people and blah 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 and it was just terrible because you know, want, they wanted us to sell and make their profits. When we took them on board, the deal was there's no out. When you buy into this company, you're in until the Hubbards say you're out. period. And they knew that going in and Larry Carlson stood up and said, you're wrong. So George Soros said, oh, can I have lunch with you? And Larry said, no, I don't have lunch with you. You're not my type of person. Oh, I'm thinking. They answered you, you the other name of that New York Times reporter, Geraldine uh, Fabricant. I got it. Geraldine. Well, I'm old it takes time. Geraldine Fabricant was a writer for the New York Times. And she was at the luncheon. And he wanted her to do a story about how these Hubbards are screwing the investors. And she came to see me. She said, Mr. Hubbard, I went all around the country talking to broadcasters and others. I can't find a single person to say a bad word about the Hubbards. So she wrote a, wrote a really nice story for us, which George Soros didn't like. Huh.
2: Did he have any reason not to like you?
3: He wanted because we wouldn't sell out. Yeah. He wanted us to sell right away. His idea was you make the investment, you take your profits. And we told him when you buy in, there's no out.
2: And their other bedfellow, the Hughes Direct TV folks, got ugly too. It was one uncomfortable bed for these Hubbards.
3: And a dirty bastard. There was a process of failure on the satellite. And the process of failure automatically flipped to the next process. You wouldn't even notice it was on the 4th of July. And then they launched another satellite, a higher power satellite. Now, we were a pain in their neck because we were doing more business than they were in terms of subscribers. Or as many, at least. We had all the great programming, right? So, oh, and we had a contract with them that said two things. It said, number one, they're going to carry our channels in case there's a failure. Not all the channels, but the basic. Because if there'd be a failure for them, there'd be a failure for them, right? And also, we could buy onto the high-power satellite for $30 million. That would increase the number of channels, right? Then they told us, well, it's going to cost us $60 million, not $30 million, if you want on and we're not going to carry your programs. I talked to our, our legal team and said, you know what? If they don't, they'll go to court. You're going to be in court for years and it's going to cost you a million dollars. The long one, we're going to win, but you're probably going to be out of business in the meantime. So there was a satellite failure. And DirecTV, our great friends of DirecTV, went to Wall Street and told people, we had a public offering, that uh, if the Hubbard satellite, if, if this satellite fails, Hubbard's off there and out of business. And our stock price went right down to nothing. And I was really ticked off. We had enough insurance to launch a new satellite, and uh, you know get the keep and keep, uh, keep paying the bills while we launched a new satellite. But the boys came and pointed out something to me, and that was we got all sorts of grandmas and grandpas who invested in the business, and we go out of business. With what happens to them? Because I was I'm good at swearing, I they their sons of bitches the hell. Other goddamn we're going to stick it out if our satellite fails. We'll launch a new one. They knew it wouldn't fail. But they were telling Wall Street that the Hubbards are off there and out of business if the satellite fails. And they spooked all of our investors. And The boys could say, well, maybe we better merge with direct TV, because they have been trying to buy us. They had been trying to buy us for, from day one. So I reluctantly, because thinking about not us but our shareholders, we had to do it, because we couldn't ask others to take the risk. They bought our stock in good faith.
2: And their shareholders made out pretty darn
3: well. I was brought up with this saying, if you serve the public, profit will take care of itself.
2: And DirecTV would make one additional offer to just some members of the Hubbard family.
3: They offered Stan and Rob, was $8 million for a non-compete. And Stan and Rob came to me and said, Dad, we don't want them, and We want the money to go to all the employees of USSB. That $8 million went to all the employees of USSB and the boys got not a nickel.
2: Which no one forced them or even asked them to do. How did Stan's kids become like this?
3: I made sure my wife and other kids went to public school. Because he wanted them to learn to learn how to get along with everybody, and they did. And they had friends, dear friends. were, as the saying goes, poor as a church mouse. But everybody's treated equally, and we're all friends. And they still are good friends. Our boys are down there. Our kids are down to earth kids, they aren't snobs. And I, we made them work. Our oldest, Kari's first outside job was as a uh, hotel maid. And Jenny's first job was Jenny used to open up Mr. Steak at like 5 or 6 a.m.
2: And Jenny went on to run their radio division and has grown it from two radio stations to over 40.
0: And there you have it, a terrific story. Great job, as always, Alex. And like her parents did for them, Jenny sent her kids to public schools. Stan's children run their company, Hubbard Broadcasting, today. His job is, as he calls it, chief cheerleader. Saying that, quote, I talk to people and once in a while they'll listen to my ideas. Sometimes they even take them. But they run the business on a daily basis. Some of our own grandchildren are also working for the company. And by goodness, isn't this the American dream? By the way, that's why when you hear about estate taxes and, and businesses being sold, just how bad it is and how evil it is that people then have to get taxed again when grandpop dies. It's absurd. It's obscene. And we don't get political often, but that's not political. That's not a part of the American dream. And Stan says that his family is only in this business because they've earned it. Growing up, the neighborhood kids would often ask, quote, why do the Hubbard kids have to work so hard? They can afford to get the lawn cut. And they could, but their character couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford not to cut the grass. Not to work as the hotel maid and not to open up restaurants. And by the way, if that's one thing we do a lot here in our American Stories, it's talk about work, the importance of work and grit and character, because it can't be given. It must be built. And in the end, it must be earned. The American character, American stories, the Hubbard story, multi generational, a beauty. Here, on our American stories, and thanks to the folks at Job Creators Network who are fighting and working hard on behalf of small business owners all across this country, from auto body shops to hair salons. What everybody wants to do is have their own little piece of earth, piece of turf, and do what they want to do, and do God's work. Again, this is our American stories, the Hubbard stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. That's our American network dot org. This is Our American Stories, and we've got a treat for you this hour of this day in history that focuses on a name you all know. On this day in history, Henry Steinway died. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway, goes Irving Berlin's song, I Love a Piano. By 1915, Berlin didn't need to explain the word Steinway. It had been the preeminent American piano for more than 50 years. After 1860, most pianos were copies of Steinway's. Chickering, Weber, Mason and Hamlin all came and went. Steinway stayed on top. In the end, the story we are about to bring you is a story about resiliency and the search for freedom. Let's take a listen to that story.
4: As guests dine on succulent roasted fowl, and mouth-watering marinated oysters, washing their palates with ice-cold champagne. Piano music is in the air. The occasion is the opening of the new Steinway factory in New York on April 1, 1860. A correspondent from a local newspaper declares, it is conceded that the Steinway piano, in make, tone, sweetness, precision and durability, is the most perfect instrument of that class to be had anywhere in the world. The road to victory began 63 years earlier in Wolfshagen, a small forest hamlet nestled in the slopes of the Upper Harz Mountains in northwest Germany, where Heinrich Steinweg, founder of Steinway & Sons, is born. Church records reveal that the Steinwigs were master charcoal burners, They lived in the woods and like most charcoal burners were regarded with deep suspicion by townspeople who rarely saw them. Steinweg's childhood is marked by many tragedies and twists of fate. At the age of eight, during a harsh winter, his mother and most of his siblings die from exposure. He is orphaned until his father and brothers, once thought to have been killed in action, return from the Napoleonic Wars and claim him. Then. At 15, he is orphaned once again, penniless and living on the streets. He seeks refuge in the German army. Two years later, he is fighting against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Family legend has it that when an advance is made on Napoleon, the charge is signaled by a lone bugler, Heinrich Steinweg. According to this tale, he is awarded a bronze medal for bugling in the face of the enemy. When not heading off to battle, he is in the barracks, making mandolins and other instruments, and occasionally striking up a tune with a military band. After six years of military service, Steinwig begins an apprenticeship with the church organ builder. He is also introduced to the piano through his Jewish friend Carl Brand. Steinwig learns to build a piano by copying brands. As he changes the pipes of church organs, he becomes interested in notes, octaves, and chords. Thirsting for knowledge, he appears every Friday evening at his church to listen to the organist rehearse for Sunday services. Every German craftsman in 1835 has to belong to a guild Since Heinrich Steinweg doesn't have a master craftsman diploma as an instrument maker, he's not allowed to build pianos officially, so he becomes a cabinet maker. But he's still very much interested in building instruments. He has restored, uh, I think, many
6: instruments. He has seen them, he has compared them, and he has made his own uh, concept, his own piano, at that time for him who was better than the instruments
4: he has seen around him. Apart from being skilled in working with wood and special tools, building a keyboard instrument requires musicality and a complex knowledge of mathematics and physics. But Steinweg relies on intelligence and intuition. The cabinet maker decides to start building Forte Pianos and courts a woman he falls madly in love with, Juliana Tima, the daughter of a well-established glovemaker. maker. For the wedding, Steinweg wants to impress his sweetheart with a very unusual gift.
6: Oh my goodness! Is that for me?
5: Did you make this? Of course. Can I play it?
4: in 1835 he gives his bride his first square piano that he designs himself
5: it sounds wonderful
4: here's heinrich steinvig's descendant miles chapin
6: that is consistent a little bit with this image of a businessman i mean if if your first product is very complex and technically complicated you don't want to sell it because it might break in which case your reputation is ruined before it's even been made so for him to take his first piano and give it to his wife I think that's wonderful. Here, you you play this, honey, and tell me if it works, you know.
4: Newly wed and raring to go, Heinrich Steinweg starts working and wants to build not only good pianos, but the best pianos in the world. With meticulousness and passion, he begins building his first grand piano in 1836, which he later sells to the Duke of Brunswick for 3,000 marks. This piano is later named the Kitchen Piano, and is now on display at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, along with the square piano he gave to his wife.
6: I believe he started out as a cabinet maker, but if you think about it from a businessman's point of view, with the amount of labor and the amount of time it takes to make one thing that's this big, okay? If this thing is a chest of drawers, you can sell it for X. But if this thing that you're making is a piano, and takes longer to make, you can sell it for five times X, six, ten times X, so that his product could be more valuable to him and his profit margins would be greater. I don't think he was driven musically at all. I don't think he was driven creatively at all. I think he was purely, my take is, a purely a businessman and he had a product that was a higher value product and he would get a higher profit from it. Easier to transport, easier to build at home. He could have one at a time going. Uh, And that was why
0: he went into it. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Steinway. In 1871, Henry Steinway died. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More after these messages. Our American stories, and you're hearing a Steinway piano being played. That's Rachmaninoff. And on this day in history, Henry Steinway died. And by the way, so many of our This Day in History stories, when they're about business and they're back century and two centuries ago, are about immigrants. And by the way, even our Andy Grove story, which actually was just a less the This Day in History story than a celebration of his life, and he's one of the powerhouses behind Intel another amazing immigration story and an immigrant story we pick up things where we left off
4: steinwick's first grand piano is an enormous success to meet the growing demand heinrich Steinwig decides to train his young boys even his five-year-old has to help out in the workshop his musically talented daughter doretta is only allowed to watch The crafts are strictly for men. With the help of his sons, Steinwig can make 10 to 12 instruments a year. Then, in 1848, riots engulf most of Europe because of political instability and economic uncertainty, spawning movements towards socialism. Heinrich's second son, Charles, is on the front lines in the fight for the people's sovereignty against an absolutist prince and the civil liberties for the Christian middle class. The Socialist Revolution fails to produce a redistribution of wealth, land or power, but it did paralyze businesses throughout Europe, thereby encouraging businessmen like Heinrich Steinweg to consider leaving. Fearing reprisals for their son, Charles leaves Germany and sails to New York City in 1849, where he is to find a safe haven both for himself and for the Steinweg piano business. In June 1849, Charles lands in New York, the heart of professional music making in America and of America's piano industry. The other major piano manufacturing cities are Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, all centers for German immigrants. Pianos have only been in America since the revolution. Most of them brought in from shipwrecks by pirates as part of their booty. The rest were imported by John Jacob Astor, the German millionaire fur trader, who occasionally bartered furs for pianos. Beloved parents, brothers and sisters. Six weeks after his arrival, Charles writes to his family for the first time. New York seems to be an El Dorado for keyboard instruments. I
5: soon found employment with a piano manufacturer. It's a pretty well-paying job. The growth of wealth in the United States promises great opportunities for piano
4: manufacturers. You'll hardly believe it, but in nearly every household, there's a piano. Family music is a part of daily life here. Be courageous and do not hesitate for too long.
6: It was a time of great political upheaval in Germany, uh, in Europe, all through Europe. Um, It was not a climate conducive to business, and the Steinways, if anything, were businessmen, and Heinrich, if anything, was a businessman. And he lived in this small town in the Harts Mountain region, Zazen, and he made his pianos one by one at home, but to sell them, he had to take them places, and to take them places, he had to cross borders, and when he crossed borders, there were tariffs, there were added costs that weren't going into his pocket, and he was ambitious. I think he just decided rationally to leave Germany to set up a shop in New York City.
4: On May 28, 1850, the Steinwigs, along with their three daughters and three sons, board the first German ocean liner in Hamburg. On her maiden voyage, the Steinwigs reached New York City in just 30 days. Their eldest son, Theodor, stays in Germany to run the rest of the company. When the Steinwigs arrive, they face no restrictions, no questions, no Ellis Island, and no Statue of Liberty. They quickly move into a small rented apartment on Hester Street, in the middle of a quarter that's known as Little Germany. The Steinwigs apartment is certainly very different from their spacious home back in Germany. With more than 600,000 German immigrants, New York is a German enclave. By 1860, one out of every four New Yorkers is German-born. Only Berlin and Vienna have more German citizens. These Germans brought with them a classical music culture which didn't exist in America. Here's Kathleen Hulser from the New York Historical Society speaking to us on St. Mark's Place just between 2nd and 3rd avenues.
5: On this street you could see how busy and productive Germans were when they got to America. There would be pretzel sellers along the street, people selling cabbage, women selling clothes, and the Germans were really good at founding their own groups. They liked to get together and do things together. So they had Turnverein, a club for men. They had their beer gardens, where the whole family would go. And they had things like a gun club, which you can see right on this street. It's still here. The gun club, the Schützengesellschaft, is something that was not just about shooting targets, it was also about men enjoying each other's company and drinking beer.
4: The Steinwigs didn't go into business right away. Instead, they decided to work for others until they got their feet on the ground and learned some English and New York methods. Heinrich and his sons select the best New York piano makers to work for, so that they can learn the latest and finest techniques but three years after their arrival an economic depression hits new york heinrich's sons are unemployed and he's earning a very low day's pay as an employed piano maker but giving up is out of the question
0: don't worry, I've got a plan
4: in these times of instability the piano maker quits his job and opens his own workshop with his sons they no longer have very much to lose but with this move, they now have the potential to achieve a lot. To help with sales, business friends advise the Steinvigs to Americanize their name. And so Heinrich Steinwig becomes Henry Steinway. A humble attic on Varick Street, just below Canal Street on the west side of Manhattan, becomes their first company headquarters. On March 5th, 1853, with only a verbal contract and a capital investment of just $6,000, the family-owned company called Steinway & Sons is founded. It was a good time to be in the piano business. Musical life in America was flourishing and the piano was at the center of the increasing interest in music. Music in the home was seen as medicine for the soul and a stimulant for romance. Most piano pupils were women, other instruments being seen as detracting from feminine attractiveness. The cello demanded that a woman spread her legs, and the harp ruined her posture. But at the piano, she could sit demurely with her feet together. Even courtship increasingly took place at the keyboard.
6: Now, my mother was the Steinway in the family, and she had four older brothers who she watched, one by one, go off and work at the family business. So naturally, when she came of age, she asked her father, When do I start in the family business? And the story goes that he brought her to the piano and said, Come here. Open the piano. Read me what it says in the piano. Steinway and Sons. Please, don't embarrass me. There's no women at Steinway and Sons. Even my secretary is a man. Close the lid of the piano. Forget it.
4: Here's Andy Horbachevsky. Vice President of Steinway & Sons, New York. What was amazing to me is that in the 10 years
7: from um, 1853 to 1860, when they started the factory, the very big factory um, on on Park Avenue here, they went from scratch to building the most grand pianos of any other piano manufacturers. And I think that's a credit to not only the excellent design and craftsmanship, but they were tremendous, I think, businessmen and marketers and salesmen.
0: And on this day in history, in 1871, Henry Steinway died. And as always, our this days in history are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale College, where you study all the things that matter in life. If you're a student there, philosophy, art, education itself also consists of sports there. And, well, of course, the Constitution and our founders. This day in history, Henry Steinway, the story continues and it just gets better after these messages.
7: questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never
0: This is our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway being celebrated for the hour. And on this day in history, Henry Steinway died. And we're playing Billy Joel for a reason. He said this about Steinway. I've long admired Steinway pianos for their quality of tone, clarity, pitch, consistency, touch, responsiveness, and superior craftsmanship. And thus Steinway continues to live on With so many artists to perform Diana Krall, Harry Connick Jr. Irving Berlin only played Steinway's George Gershwin, Vladimir Horowitz, Cole Porter The list goes on and on And with that, let's go back to the story of Henry Steinway Each Steinway and Sons
4: grand piano is handcrafted And comprises 12,000 individual parts assembled by as many as 450 people. The process takes over a year to complete. Although it's always the same construction plans and materials, no two pianos ever sound alike. Steinway Grand Pianos all have their own individual sound and personality. Here's Lang Lang, who is considered by many to be one of the finest concert pianists of all time. Lang compares the best pianos to great actors for their ability to convey extremes of emotion and attitude. It was the flamboyant pianism in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, he says, that originally drew him to the instrument. I
1: had a great privilege to go to um, both uh, Steinway factories in New York uh, and in Hamburg. And uh, the people who work there, they 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 are really work into the very detailed work. Um, it's a big monster, right? I mean it's huge, but when they start working, almost like you found that they're they're working on a Swiss watch. It's so detailed, everything's so precise, like they're making a mailin or making some smaller item, you know, and, and that precise work really transferred and uh, to Um, to the sound.
4: There is a unique person in Steinway's factory, the one who makes the final tuning for all pianos before delivery. With an expert touch, he can quickly discern the questionable keys and makes chalk marks. Then he patiently adjusts the hammers to achieve the perfect string strokes. Because of his acute gift, he is known as Steinway's ear. Walter Boot is the heart and soul of Steinway & Sons and has been working in the piano factory in New York for over 50 years. Not a single Steinway piano leaves the building until it satisfies his absolute hearing.
6: My job is to even out the tone. I get the piano, the piano is all done, ready to go to somebody's house. And I, like, fine-tune it. I listen to it, I play it, I make it all the sound even, so I'm happy with it. When I'm happy with it, I know you're gonna be happy with it. I love working with Chiang Wei. Chiang Wei gave my whole life, they call me Uncle Wally, because I worked here so long. When the piano come here, it look like a piano. When it leaves, it sounds like a piano. Do I put the, the love into the piano?
7: Mozart, so it is a, a really a circle of refinement. As the piano moves to the end of the line, we're constantly working on the pianos. We're constantly trying to get that last uh, that last ounce of of tone out of it. We will baby that hammer. We will pull out as much as we can.
6: If there was any single patent that made the most difference, it would be the overstrung one piece cast iron frame. That's what differentiated the Steinway piano in its day. It was the first piano company to bring a grand piano with a one piece cast iron frame to market successfully. They first showed it in 1867 in Paris and pretty much you can measure the history of the piano from the time running up to that point and the time running away from that point because today you can't buy a piano that doesn't have a one-piece cast-iron overstrong frame but before that time
4: there were none. Together with his sons Henry Steinway sees himself heading in the right direction and his success proves him right. His credo is the same as ever to build the best pianos in the world.
6: You see pictures of him, and there's only a couple of them, and he was ramrod straight, and his fists jammed into his pocket, and set of his jaw, just like this. He was very determined, determined to make a successful company, to make a success of his life in the United States, to give his children a better life than he had. I think it's that classic American story.
4: The Steinways' future depends first on skill, then on national recognition to boost sales. The company founder has an ingenious idea. He realizes that the renowned pianists and composers of the time are the ideal advertisers for Steinway & Sons. So he signs the acclaimed artists exclusively to Steinway. They are not bashful. They are not afraid to tell us if
7: something is not 100% with the piano itself. So we are very lucky to have this very good feedback information coming back to us from this very valuable part of our customer base, the concert artists.
5: They then built the
1: Steinway Hall. Here in the Steinway Hall is where concerts took place. When you wanted to go to the concert hall, you had to walk through the exhibition rooms. And so, naturally, they did even more advertising for the pianos with that.
4: The New York Times wrote at the time, the Steinways can be proud that they own the most magnificent piano business in the whole world. Today, over 95% of the world's finest pianists prefer Steinway pianos for their concerts. At 67, Henry Steinway has fulfilled all his dreams, reputation, wealth, and fame. But then, tragedy strikes. On March 11, 1865, Henry Jr. dies of consumption at the age of just 35. Then, just days later, Henry's other son Charles dies of typhoid fever while visiting his brother in Germany must have been devastating
6: to Henry Steinway. I mean, to lose not only one son, but two sons. I mean, of course, that was an era where people died more easily. You didn't live as long, and children died. But it was very, very difficult for him, especially, you know, being an immigrant. I mean, his whole family, he brought with him. They were here, and when it's diminished by two, well, he did have the one son back in Germany, but when it's diminished the number that are in New York by two, that was when they wanted to bring C.F. Theodore over to you know, strengthen the
4: family. It is William's job now to keep the family business running. He writes to his brother, Theodore, in Germany that they desperately need him in New York. And three weeks later, brothers William and Theodore form the perfect company management. Theodore invents groundbreaking features for grand piano mechanisms. And William knows how to sell them. Their success starts spiraling.
0: This is Our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway. On this day in history, Henry Steinway died. The final segment after these messages.
3: I love to hear somebody play Upon a piano, a grand piano It simply carries me away Show them how to do it, Ralph I love the fine way He plays a Steinway love to watch his fingers all oh, the keys, the ivories And with his pedal, he loves to meddle Not only music from Broadway He's so delighted when he's invited To hear some long hat genius play So you can keep your fiddle And your bow, give me a B-I-A-N-O-O I'd like to stop right up to an
0: This is Our American Stories You're listening to Tony Bennett And the great Ralph Sharon And... Bennett is one of those folks his keyboard players always play a Steinway too and on this day in history Henry Steinway died the skill set the way that the talents of
6: the sons meshed is really what made the difference because on the one hand you had C.F. Theodore Steinway engineering the piano differently but then on the other hand you had his brother William Steinway who was changing the way you sold pianos changing the marketing of pianos And so when you had a company that had a demonstrably finer product coupled with uh, a CEO, a corporate officer who knew how to sell that product and was innovative in the ways he was selling that product, boom, it came together and it just made a, a, a sum greater than the sum of the parts. Then, in
4: 1863, those parts were attacked by the Manhattan Workers' Union strikes.
6: When the furniture makers' union decided to target the piano industry, Steinway was the biggest, had the most prominent name, and they decided to target Steinway & Sons. I think William Steinway was tremendously surprised by that, surprised, insulted, nonplussed, and he was shocked. Uh, His workers say he treated them as if they were his children. I mean, he had a very patronizing, in the best sense of the word, attitude towards his workers. He felt that he was their patron, he was their father figure. Um, at that time, he had a country house out here in Bowery Bay in Queens, and I think he had a revelation one day. He said, wait a minute, New York's over there, I have a house here, here's all this land, the water, the ocean is right there, I can bring my warm materials in here. I can move my factory here. And I think he deliberately set about doing that, buying the acreage out here, um, moving the company out piece by piece, digging the tunnel underneath the East River. You know, the Steinway Tunnel was the first tunnel under the East River. I took it this morning, when I took the subway into Manhattan, the number seven train goes through the William Steinway Tunnel.
4: To get the workers out of the social unrest and union riots in Manhattan, Steinway has his Steinway Village built in Astoria, Queens. And he built gymnasiums, libraries,
6: churches, housing for his workers, and a lot of it is still there. Um, You can see on the streets, you know, the streets have been renamed, you know, 30th Avenue, 31st Street, but you can go to some of the housing that was the factory housing, and you can see chiseled on stone on the side of the building, Albertstrasse, Friedrichstrasse, and that was the names that William Steinway had for his original city.
4: Then, in 1880, Theodore will return to Germany in order to open and operate a second factory in Hamburg, Germany. Since then they have split the global market into two parts. New York supplies North and South America, and Hamburg the rest of the world. And there are subtle differences.
7: Certainly a little in terms of just the the finish and the high gloss versus the satin look. But there are also some uh, tonal differences in terms of how the tone is perceived. From our perspective as a global company, uh, we like the choice. There are artists that prefer the New York Instrument in, in Europe and vice versa. That in, in, the, in North America here, some prefer the Hamburg. We think that offering a choice is good and um,
4: we will not change that in the future. The 150-year-old company produces about 2,000 handmade 9-foot concert grand pianos a year compared with the approximately 100 a day by other companies. These magnificent instruments do not come cheap. One is shown in the Steinway showroom here in New York on West 57th Street with a price tag of $103,000. No wonder a prospective buyer is very particular in choosing a specific piano. Each handmade instrument has its own personality. Some yield brighter sounds, while others have deeper, more muted timbers. The limited production hinges a lot on the brand's quite severe selection standards for timber. After all, 85% of the Steinway piano is made from wood. Precious timbers from all over the world are neatly stacked in Steinway's warehouses, and there they spend two years in their natural drying process before the next step space between them ensures good air circulation and the pliability of wood. After the drying process only 50 to 60 percent pass the rigorous quality checks to become piano parts. As the soundboard is the central part of a piano, the design and selection of the materials for it must be meticulous. The artisans select the finest North American spruce. Spruce has the desired regular grain to ensure a smooth resonance. Only 5-10% to of the timber from one tree can be used for the handmade soundboard by the experienced artisans. Australian concert pianist Piers Lane has specially flown to Hamburg to choose three concert grand's for his hometown Sydney.
5: works as well. There's a singing sound with quality. Now, it'd be interesting to compare that with the one down the end, say. We start with the same thing.
4: Piers is attended to by a Steinway & Sons sales consultant, Garrett Glaner, who jots down notes while following Piers around a brightly lit showroom filled with Steinway grand pianos
5: don't feel it's got the same fineness of quality as the other one in the tone, but let's try some Mozart. I don't feel it's got the same depth of character as the other one. The other one's got more core to the sound. I want to compare that now with the first one.
4: After a sound test marathon of six and a half hours, the pianist is just about to choose the three Steinway grands that he finds worth considering among the huge selection.
5: It's interesting because it makes me play it in a slightly different way. This piano. How do you feel, Garrett? The middle one is a kind of a mixed tone. Oh, it's true. But yeah, uh, if I should use the term noblesse, yes, I would find it most in this one because this one. there's yeah. some extra I agree. glimpse on, yeah. on each note and I yeah. think it has a beautiful cantabile. I like the balance of the piano. Exactly. It feels, you know, even across the whole range. But at the same time it has the classical um,
6: transparency as well in the texture. Periodically, there has been in the history of the piano, uh, the death bell has been summoned or been struck. You know what happened in the 1920s when player pianos started and when radio came on, people said, oh, well, nobody will listen to pianos anymore. After World War II, with hi-fi and television, people said, oh, people won't have pianos anymore. In the 50s, with electric pianos and Hammond organs, oh, no, people will never need pianos anymore. Didn't happen then hasn't happened now, you know. And still people are, are, are improving, tinkering, as you say, a little bit with the piano, just trying to find small improvements to it. But there's nothing that can replace it. Nothing can replace the sound of a grand piano. Well played.
4: After 74 years, in 1871, an unusual life journey comes to an end, a journey that took the orphan from the Hartz Mountains in Germany to the highest highs of music. Courage, perseverance, and family were his strengths. After 150 plus years of turmoil, feuds, depression, wars, competition from the Far East, and people increasingly wanting their music from radios, records, cassettes, compact discs, and MP3 players, nothing has silenced the Steinway sound, even if what Steinway is now selling is its past rather than any technical innovations. A New York Times reporter referred to the Steinway factory as a resilient treasure in a city that wonders whether it has lost its soul. With his Steinway and Sons piano, Henry Steinway has made himself immortal.
0: And great job on that, as always, Greg. We love these hours. And by the way, only 50% of companies will survive the first five years of business, only a third will survive 10. In family owned businesses, 70% fail in the second generation, 88% dead on arrival by the third generation. And Steinway, my goodness, still thriving and on a fifth generation. This is Our American Stories, an immigrant story, an American enterprise story, an American exceptionalism story. It's all there, and it's tied to art and commerce, as it always is. This is Our American Stories, and as always are this day in history, brought to us by the great people and the great folks at Hillsdale College.